everyone. It's Gloria and welcome to season four, episode 10 of Miss Finn Dependent. It is the season finale and I am so excited to share this episode with you. Today, I am here with my friend Russell who has lived in five different countries and we will be chatting about working abroad as a Canadian and how to manage your money cross-border. We'll go over bank accounts, credit cards, currency conversion, investing, and more. Hope you enjoy. I am here today with my friend, Russell. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for joining me today. Why don't you start off by telling us a little bit about yourself? Sounds good. So my name is Russell. I am in my late 20s. I work as a software engineer for a big tech company in the US, but I'm currently based in Toronto. A fun fact about myself is I've lived in five countries throughout my life and I've traveled to 39 countries in total. Wow. (laughs) 39. That's crazy. Yeah. I've been to, how many have I been to? 26. So I'm I'm catching up. Catching up, catching up. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Today's topic is working abroad and how to manage your money while abroad because Russell has lived in five different countries. So I thought that he would be the perfect person to talk about this. Awesome. Yeah. Glad to enlighten your listeners with some of the pros and cons to working abroad and how to manage your money. But before we begin, what is your relationship with money? My relationship with money. I think growing up, my parents have always instilled the importance of saving and budgeting and pretty much instilling good values in how to be good stewards with money. Having those values growing up, I've always been more of a saver than a spender. I think I like to live frugally. I'm not really very materialistic when it comes to buying things for myself. So I love investing, saving money and kind of like using that in order to plan my future and trying to determine what I can or can't do. Yeah. So let's start off with the countries that you've lived and worked in. I grew up in the Philippines. I moved to Canada and I've also lived in the UK, the United States and Sweden. Sweden doesn't really count because that was a semester abroad. So I studied there for five months. But I have worked in Canada, the United States, and the United Kingdom. What are some challenges that you faced while managing your money when you're a Canadian but living abroad? Some of the challenges that I experienced, uh, especially after having that experience of working in multiple countries, is just trying to be organized with all of my assets. For instance, I have... (laughs) open retirement accounts in three different countries (laughs) and trying to just keep track of those and making sure I don't forget to withdraw my retirement funds and what those tax implications are. Just being organized with all of my assets and try to keep tabs on them every once in a while. Otherwise, if you lose track, then they'll just forget. And if you forget, then you lose those funds. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And are these mostly employer-sponsored retirement accounts? Is that why you open them? Yeah. So they're employer-sponsored accounts. In most uh, tech companies, they have, and in most companies in general, I would say they have company matching for those retirement accounts. In the UK, for instance, I am not allowed to withdraw from that account until I turn, I believe, 55. Previously, there were agreements between Canada and the UK where you can transfer your retirement account to an RRSP. 
But then because of rules in Canada where you can withdraw from your RRSP early, such as when you purchase a home or for other exceptions, then a lot of dual citizens between Canada and the UK would try to take advantage of this loophole and withdraw from their UK pensions early by transferring them to Canada and withdrawing from their RRSP. Mm-hmm. So the UK government closed that loophole. So now I'm not allowed to transfer my UK retirement account to my RRSP in Canada. Mm. So it's just stuck there and kind of just sitting around until I turn 55. Yeah. Well, the money will grow, right? It's, I mean, it will grow, but at the same time, um, usually with these retirement accounts, they have pretty hefty fees. So we'll see if the, the growth will outweigh the fees over time. Yeah. Can you talk a bit about cost of living versus traveling? One thing that I had to learn the hard way is uh, there's different cost of living areas in Europe compared to Canada. So where I lived in Scotland, the cost of living was much lower. So that means that typically salaries were much lower as well compared to Canadian equivalent. It was pretty difficult to try to save money for coming back home to Canada just because of the discrepancy in the cost of living. So I wasn't able to save much compared to had I worked those years in Canada. But if I just stayed in the UK, Mm -hmm. then uh, those pounds would have gone a longer way. Right. You're living in a lower cost of living and then your salary was lower because of that. And so the difference was lower than if you had been working in Canada. Exactly, yeah. But don't you think that that difference would be the same because you are living in a higher cost of living area and then your salary is also higher. The difference would be similar in terms of percentage of your income. But in terms of raw numbers, because my income was significantly lower in the UK, bringing my savings home back to Canada would have yielded lower Canadian dollar equivalent versus had I worked in Canada and saved my money in Canada. And also with with regards to living in low cost of living areas and making a salary that is adjusted to that low cost of living, traveling becomes more expensive because your take-home pay is lower and prices in other countries aren't adjusted to your salary. So for instance, like traveling to an expensive country like Norway, my Canadian dollar would go a longer way had I had a Canadian salary versus a UK salary that was essentially a fraction of what I could have made in Canada. Right. What are some positives of managing money while working abroad? Some positives for working abroad include filing taxes, for instance, in the UK were super simple compared to all of the hoops that we have to go through in Canada and the US. In the UK, You don't have to file a personal income tax if you don't have any other income to declare. Everything is withheld from your gross income and you pretty much have an online portal where you can check whether the taxes you've uh, owed or the taxes you've paid line up. And if there are no discrepancies, then you don't really need to do anything else. If there are, then you do need to file an income tax return. But for the majority of people working in the UK, they don't need to do anything, which is very, very convenient, especially during tax season where most people in North America would be working hard to get those in time. Yeah, no, that's so interesting. I had no idea. That makes a lot of sense because if you don't have any other income to report, 
the government knows where you're working. Exactly. Why do we need to file income taxes? It makes no sense. It doesn't make any sense. And it really doesn't make sense because normally the government audits your tax returns anyway. So there's there's double work happening. Mm -hmm. There's duplication of work happening. But in Europe, they figured it out. (laughs) Yeah. It even covers like other cases. So when I was in the UK, I was also renting my spare room on Airbnb. So I had another source of income. But even that didn't require me to file an income tax return because that was considered, it was below the income threshold that warranted an income tax return. So I didn't have to file anything myself. So that was really convenient as well. Oh, wait. So then how, but like, how do they know like how much money you're getting? They don't. They don't unless you exceed a certain threshold. Obviously, like they can audit you. And if you don't report that you've made or you've exceeded the threshold where you have to file an income tax return and they could potentially penalize you. But under, I think it was 7,500 pounds per year or something where you don't need to report it to the UK government, mm-hmm. then it's fine. Like it, you, you, they pretty much don't care about that. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's that's handy. So what are some things that people should know or like have on their radar if they're planning on working abroad? What are some things that they should have on their to-do list before they leave? I think it's important to have a plan on how long you want to spend abroad, like what their timeline is with regards to working abroad, what they're going to do with their funds if they decide to come back home or how are they going to manage it if they do decide to come back home. Mm -hmm. It also depends on where you move to. For instance, if you're moving from Canada to the U.S., you also have to probably consult a tax advisor. More helpful if it's a cross-border tax advisor and they can advise you on which accounts that you're allowed to hold Uh, while you work in the States. Uh, For instance, you are discouraged from keeping your TFSA account open if you're a U.S. worker because of tax implications. Like it it counts as like like a trust, like a foreign trust if you work in the U.S., but you have a TFSA account open. So just to avoid that headache, uh, most tax advisors would say that you should uh, Mm -hmm. liquidate your TFSA and close that account. Interesting. Why is it considered a trust? It's because it's uh, not a vehicle for retirement. So it's okay to keep your RSP open because it's a retire it's a foreign retirement instrument, whereas a TFSA is a tax free vehicle for growing your money and having a foreign equivalent of that is something that's frowned upon by the US government, apparently. Mm, interesting. What about bank accounts and like setting up a bank account in a different country? For the most part, all you need to set up a bank account in a different country is proof of address. Sometimes they ask for a social security number. For instance, in the US, most bank accounts and most brokerages ask for a social security number. But I think if you can get away with just having a physical address in the US, I'm not sure if you can use a PO box. Mm Mm-hmm. Wait, so how do you get a social security number? For the most part, you need a visa sponsorship. So my social security number 
explicitly says this is only valid with work authorization. So meaning it's only valid with a valid U.S. work visa. But for the most part, I think you'll need uh, work authorization in order to obtain a U.S. social security number. So I guess like opening a bank account goes hand in hand with working and living in the U.S. Yeah. But it's pretty easy to do once you've had those prerequisites. Mm-hmm. Okay. And how do you move money between countries? That's a good question. Between the U.S. and Canada, I use a technique called Norwood's Gambit. And essentially how it works is there are a few securities that are listed in both the Canadian and the U.S. stock uh, exchanges. And what you do is you purchase shares in one stock exchange and you journal them over to the equivalent stock in the currency that you want to trade to. And you just sell those. So completely bypassing foreign exchange fees, currency conversion, and it ends up being quite cheap because you really only have to pay for two transaction fees. For me, I was able to move large sums of money in just about like $10 or something using, and it's pretty close to like the exchange rate that you would see on Google. Right. I would recommend that for large transactions or even for small ones. It's a little bit cumbersome, but the savings I think is worth it. For other currencies, I use a, a service called TransferWise. I'm not sure if you're familiar with TransferWise. Is it just a website that you can use to send money in different currencies? Exactly. So it's, it's a website, an app that you can use to send money to different currencies. And it's significantly cheaper than the rates that, you, that banks give you just because they bypass the, the bank. So they don't actually convert your money from one currency to the other. Like your money doesn't go to the intended recipient directly. What they do is they try to match money that's leaving the the currency and money that's coming into the currency. It's essentially like peer-to-peer trading. So like bypassing the middleman and just trying to determine who owes what and reconciling uh, the differences. Hmm, Okay, interesting. And how do taxes work between countries? Why don't we break it down bit between Canada and US and then Canada and UK? Sure. I think the differences are pretty much the same. So obviously there are different tax codes between US, Canada and the UK. But fortunately, there are tax treaties between these countries that enable people like myself to work in multiple countries and yet not be Uh, double taxed for income made in those countries. Mm -hmm. So for example, this year, I started working in the US, but I am not yet considered a US resident because I haven't lived there long enough. So technically, I'm still a Canadian resident and I have to pay Canadian taxes. Mm -hmm. So I have to file a tax return to both Canada and the US. But what ends up happening is I uh, have to pay my income tax to the US. The percentage of my gross income gets automatically withheld by my employer. But when I file my Canadian tax return, I have to report my American income, but also get a tax refund for that American income because of the tax treaty between US and Canada, which is nice. So I have to pay Canadian taxes for pretty much my global income minus the money that I earned in the US. Right. At the end of the day, what ends up happening is you end up paying the country that has a higher tax rate, those taxes. So if 
the Canadian tax rate was say 40% and the American tax rate was 30%, then I owe 30% of my income to the US and then the remaining 10% I give to Canada. True. Okay. Wow. It's been so long since I've thought about this, like (laughs) tax class in university. Oh my gosh. But I, I do remember that to be a resident, it's 183 days. That's something that I'll never forget. Yep. And it's uh, the way that they calculate 183 days is also pretty interesting. So it's 183 days of being in the US, but how they count those days is different depending on the year. So it's 183 days over the last three years. Every day in the current year counts as one day. And in the previous year, it counts as one third of a day. And in the two years before that, it's a one sixth of a day. How do you keep track of that? So you can keep track of that by checking your I-94 record. That pretty much is the source of truth for how long you've been in the U.S. That's essentially a record of when you enter and leave the United States. So that's what the government uses to audit your residency status. But personally, I just keep tabs on my Google calendar (laughs) and and how long I've stayed. Mm -hmm. I mean, the easiest way to meet that requirement is to stay in the United States for half a year without leaving the country. But if you're like me, who goes like back and forth a lot, then that's something that you have to consider. Right. Also one, I forgot to mention one advantage of working abroad potentially is taking advantage of the currency exchange rates between countries. For instance, like currently I'm employed by an American employer, but I'm living in Canada, but I'm still earning income in US dollars. So converting that to Canadian. So basically it's like 30% free. It's essentially like a 30% bonus since I'm spending money here in Canada, which is nice. Even as like a temporary thing, it's it's still a nice boost to have. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. What about trading and investing? Like, are you able to open up a US brokerage account? Yeah, for sure. Opening a U.S. brokerage account is pretty much as easy as opening a U.S. bank account once you have the prerequisites of having a physical U.S. address. And for some accounts, you need a social security number. I would comment, though, that the investment vehicles that the U.S. offers for regular citizens aren't as good as the ones offered in Canada. Like the TFSA is super good. Yeah, There is a TFSA equivalent called the Roth IRA, but it's not quite as good in the sense that you can't withdraw your funds without penalty. Oh, really? Yeah. So you have to wait until you can withdraw your contributions without penalty, but the growth of your funds, you can't withdraw until you hit retirement age. Oh, so it's also kind of a retirement. It is a retirement account. Like the IRA stands for individual retirement account. Oh, okay. Yeah, I didn't know that. I thought that it was just very similar to the TFSA. Same here. I guess that's like one other thing that folks need to keep in mind because I thought when I moved to the U.S. that there's going to be a one-to-one equivalent for all of the financial instruments that we have here in Canada, but it turns out that's not always the case. Mm -hmm. So for the Roth IRA, not only is it non-withdrawable for the most part before you hit retirement age, but the contribution limit is also lower compared to the Canadian counterpart. Mm -hmm. And there's also limits in how much you can contribute to it. 
So if you exceed a certain income threshold, then you're not even allowed to contribute to it. Oh, interesting. Yeah. That's really interesting. In general, there aren't as many good tax shields for day-to-day investments that are offered to people in America compared to the TFSA here, which is a great tool for everyday investors. Yeah, absolutely. But at the same time, Americans pay less income taxes. For the most part, I would I would agree. Although in California, the income taxes are very similar to Ontario. Oh, really? Yeah, the, the tax rate is pretty high in California. There are a few states like Washington and Texas that don't have state income tax. So that's an additional 9 to 12% of your paycheck that you can keep. But for California, yeah. they have pretty significant state income taxes, high cost of living. So mm-hmm. unless you work for a big tech company, it's pretty hard to save money in the Bay Area, I would say. Yeah, I was reading this article about how people live in their car and like the Google parking lot. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I definitely know friends and friends of friends who've done that. That's crazy. That's crazy. (laughs) But some of them not even because they can't afford housing. It's just it's cheaper than like paying like $3,000 in rent. (laughs) Well, yeah, that's true. But how comfortable is your car? Yeah, probably not the most comfortable but to each their own (laughs) yeah you can live in like a camper van exactly yeah that might be a little bit more comfortable (laughs) but yeah like the the cost of living is pretty expensive although i would argue that the the salaries more than make up for the high cost of living yeah would you say that It, it more than makes up for the high cost of living if you're not a homeowner If you're a homeowner, then it's a totally different story because homes there start at $1.5 million and above, even for like a regular starter home. Really? Yeah. Depends on where. (laughs) That's like close to Toronto now. Oh yeah, that's true. If you you say it that way. Right? Like Toronto homes, if you think of like a single family detached home, that's at least, if it's in Toronto proper, 800 at least or 900. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, Toronto real estate is also pretty expensive. But these are like, when I'm talking about like $1.5 million homes, these are like in the suburbs. Like in San Francisco proper, you're talking about like four to $5 million. Really? (laughs) That's crazy. So like, I guess the equivalent of buying a home in Milton would be like $1.5 million, which to the average earner is like ridiculous. Ridiculous. So ridiculous. You'll be living, you'll be living in Hamilton. Actually, (laughs) Hamilton's getting expensive too. Exactly. There's there's nowhere. There's nowhere for us to go. I was, I saw some housing in St. Catharines. Like people were like, realtors are advertising St. Catharines, like the next like hotspot for, for housing. And I'm like, St. Catharines is pretty far from Toronto. Yeah, like without traffic, it takes about 50 minutes or an hour. Yeah, but who knows with the coronavirus pandemic and how it's shifted the workplace, perhaps that's going to be the norm where people just like telecommute or just like if if you only need to go to the office like twice a week, then maybe that's it's doable. doable. Yeah. Yeah, no, well, there's, I think there's a go train that goes to Niagara. Oh, yeah, yeah, so, see, there you go. <laughs> in Toronto, so totally possible. Okay, let's do it. Let's, let's all buy houses in St. Catharines in Niagara. Niagara, yeah. Yeah. And then yeah. work in Buffalo and make that USD. <laughs> yeah, exactly, there you go. 
<laughs> hacks, hacks. Hacks for, for life right here. <laughs> okay, so let's talk about credit cards. I've heard from some friends that they didn't know that their credit score didn't transfer over when um, they moved to the States. So they had to start from scratch. Are you able to transfer your credit score? Like, how does that work? For the most part, I don't think you can unless you have a substantial credit score or like you have other means of supplementing your credit score that's not just derived from credit cards. Like if you have like a mortgage in Canada, perhaps you can use that to prove your credit worthiness in the U.S. But for myself, I don't have a mortgage in Canada and my credit score was purely from my spending from credit cards, I wasn't able to transfer that directly to the U.S. counterpart. Mm -hmm. But what about like Amex and stuff? How does that work? So charge cards that Amex offers are a little bit different because they're not credit cards by the strict definition. What a charge card is, is essentially you, you spend money on the card and it automatically debits Uh, the bank account that's tied to that card at the end of the payment period. Whereas a credit card, you can set up auto pay, but for the most part, you're not forced to pay the the outstanding balance. Mm. Uh, So for that, because of the behavior of the charge card, uh, you don't really need a credit score or like a Canadian credit score to to even apply for one. Does using a charge card help with your American credit score? It does, but because it's not a credit card, it doesn't help as much as if you had like a real credit card. So what I ended up having to do was I bought a, what's called a secure credit card. So that involves paying a deposit upfront because I don't have any American credit history. That was the, that was the lowest type of credit card that I could apply for. And I had to pay, I think, a $200 deposit in order to have a $200 credit limit. <laughs> so you have to pay a deposit and you have a very low credit limit. So that's like pretty much what most people start out with for people who just started their U.S. work history. Mm-hmm. And then kind of like work your way from there. You can build, slowly build your credit and apply for regular credit cards with more credit limit. That's so interesting. I had no idea that it was like that. But is the deposit card, is that similar to a prepaid credit card? So a prepaid credit card is similar to a debit card from my understanding, where you just load it with money and you can spend that much money, but you can't exceed it. Yeah. Whereas a secure credit card that requires a deposit is you pay a deposit up front and you can spend spend as I mean you can exceed your credit limit but there's penalties for that but it essentially works as a regular credit card where you spend money on the credit card and you pay for it later yeah Uh, but it has a much lower credit limit depending on how much you paid as the deposit right and it also impacts your credit score similar to a regular credit card so the typical advice that most people give is to not exceed 30 to 40 percent of your credit limit when you start off with a secure credit card Mm -hmm. Uh, that way it allows you to build your credit score faster i'm not sure exactly how accurate that is but that's pretty much what most blogs advise so that's what i've been doing like even though i have a pretty low credit limit then i I try not to spend more than 30 percent of that still so yeah i just limit it to very very small purchases until i'm able to get my credit score a little bit up 
That's so interesting. Like one of the draws of living and working in the States is that you have access to those superior credit card rewards, right? Like the Chase Sapphire or whatever, but you can't just go there and get it. Exactly. That's what I initially thought too. Like I thought the moment that I'm able to get my social security number, my physical address, like, okay, I'm going to apply to these baller credit cards with huge bonuses, but Turns out you have to work your way up and it's not as easy. And even with those like Chase, Sapphire Reserve credit cards, a lot of these banks have become more stringent in allowing people to apply for them. So for Chase, for instance, like there's a limit to as to like how many cards you can apply to per year. And for I think for a period of like two years or something. So you have to be careful with how many cards you apply for and Uh, They're also a lot more strict in approving uh, applications. So I guess a lot of people have discovered uh, credit card trading. Mm -hmm. So they're trying to like put a limit on that. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense because people are really just getting a lot out of these points. Exactly. As a non-resident of Canada, you mentioned that you should close your TFSA and you also can't contribute to it, right? Like when you're a non-resident of Canada. That's correct, yeah. What about your RRSP? You can keep a foreign retirement fund open, such as an RRSP. They discourage contributing to it, but you can actively use up the funds that are already in your RRSP. So for instance, if you have cash left over in your RRSP account, you can still use it to buy stocks and ETFs if you want to. But you're discouraged from contributing to that RRSP because you're no longer a Canadian tax resident. Or if you're no longer a Canadian tax resident, then you shouldn't be able to contribute more to it. Right. And so this is just like if you're in any other country, like it's not just the U.S.? Yeah, if you're in any other country, because the RRSP is meant to be a retirement savings account for Canadians or Canadian residents, and more specifically, Canadians working in Canada. Yeah. So they try to reserve that for that purpose. Right. You can keep your TFSA open, but as I mentioned earlier, it will be counted as a foreign trust, and you have to declare that in your income tax return, in the American tax return. So you might have to pay taxes on those gains, which kind of negates uh, the benefits of having a a TFSA in the first place. What are some things that you wish you had known before you had moved with regard to your money? One thing that I wish I would have known, first of all, the, the credit card situation, as you mentioned before, I wish that I had known that and like not gotten my hopes up when it comes to applying for these big bonuses. So that that was kind of like below my expectations. Mm -hmm. I guess I should have done a lot more research on the tax implications of having accounts open in in both countries, in both Canada and the US. Mm -hmm. And just trying to determine what the best course of action is for making the most out of um, like minimizing taxes. Right. And that brings us to the end of our show. Well, Russell, thanks so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me again. Thank you everyone so much for your support. And again, if you want to support my podcast, you can well simple cash me at dollar sign G-L-O-R. Use my referral code and we'll both get $25. Alternatively, you can visit my buy me a coffee page and buy me a pastry. 
As the aspiring Miss Independent, this is Gloria signing out. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on your preferred podcast platform. And if you're using Apple Pods, please toss me five stars. It would help me so, so much. So see you next time. Until then, stay healthy and grow wealthy.